Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and I'm very excited to introduce Howard Beck, who is a contributor for the Locked On Network and GQ. Howard has had a tremendous career working for the New York Times, LA D Daily News, Sports Illustrated, and, and much more. And I've loved his work for a long time. And, and so I really appreciate you, Howard, coming on and taking the time. Uh, no, absolutely my pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I first want to ask you um, a little bit for the listeners that might not know is Zach Lowe always talks about the three most anticipated words in, in niche basketball podcasting. What up, Beck? Um, I want to ask you what the origin story of that is and, and why people uh, address you that way sometimes. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a fun story um, with a, a tinge of sadness attached to it because it it comes from Kobe Bryant. Um, and it, Zach first used that line, not as the opener to the podcast, but this is back in his Grantland days, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. So we're talking like nine or 10 years ago, I think. Whenever the first time I went on his podcast, and I think I was even talking on that podcast about maybe some Shaq and Kobe retrospective that I had done, something that was tapping into my old history covering the Lakers as a beat writer, which I did from 1997 to 2004. And so Zach was noting before we got into it all, he's like, you know, I always remember this moment. And the funny thing when he says this is like, I do not remember this moment or did not until he brought it up. But during the, the NBA lockout, the labor shutdown in 2011, we're bouncing all over the city around Midtown Manhattan. The, the the NBA and the union are negotiating at this hotel and that hotel. And sometimes we're in a lobby. Sometimes we're staked out on a sidewalk. We always stake outs for months on end during the lockout, trying to track the negotiations. And then eventually the players association brought in all their players, right? They negotiate with a small subgroup, right? Their executive committee. But sometimes you bring in the entire membership to discuss, here's what's on the table. Here's what we're considering. So at some point they brought in, you know, what probably not all 450 players, but hundreds of players to the Sheraton in Midtown Manhattan. And what Zach was recalling was we're waiting in the lobby. And as the players finish their meeting and they're filtering through, Kobe walks out looking very Kobe, just kind of that swagger, that strut. And he's got sunglasses on. And in Zach's recollection, he sees me. And, and I don't remember if the sunglasses actually get tipped down in like Hollywood uh, fashion or whatever. And he just says, what up, Beck? Uh, and Zach brought it up on the pod all these years ago because he just thought that was such a, this cool moment of recognition. You know, obviously, look, I covered Kobe since his second year in the league. Like I covered him every day for seven years. Um, so, so obviously we knew each other a little bit. Zach thought, just thought that was such a cool little moment. And so he says it and then Every subsequent time I've been on the pod since then, he just decided I've got to open with what up back. And so, yeah, it, it really starts with uh, Kobe back in uh, in 2011. And I, I want to ask about kind of you as a basketball writer. When did you first think you might want to become one? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's funny because I've often said there's nothing about my career especially my MBA writing career, which is now in its 26th season that I just completed, that that may really makes any sense. A lot of people come into the MBA uh, writing and MBA media today having thought at some young age, that's what I want to do. I love it. I love basketball. I love the MBA. I want to I write about the MBA or talk about the MBA or analyze the MBA for a living. That's not my path. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't set out to be here. It's a little bit of a happy accident. Okay. Back when I graduated college in, in 1991, at that time, you know, this is pretty much pre-internet. 
um, the newspapers are the primary place to get a job covering sports or to get a job covering almost anything, frankly. And at that time, if you want to, if you aspire to cover professional sports, the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, you got to get to a paper that covers those teams first in one of those markets. And then probably you're starting off covering like high schools, high school football and basketball, or maybe you, you know, maybe you get to cover uh, junior colleges or, or division one, whatever it may be, but the path toward covering professional sports, because that's the pinnacle, right? Those are the hardest beats to get. There aren't that many of them and somebody gets them and they hang on for, for years. So they're hard to come by back in the day. Then there was no internet. There were no blogs. There were no alternate routes. So maybe you went into radio or TV instead, but if you were a writer, and reporter uh, who who you know wanted to come up the way that I did, which was I read Sports Illustrated as a kid. I read my hometown newspaper, the San Jose Mercury News, their sports section as a kid, and I wanted to do that. The way to do that was to go to newspaper. And you, there's no guarantee you're ever going to get to cover the beat that you want. And the first like major beat that opens up might actually be a sport you don't you didn't aspire to cover, right? Like mm -hmm. if you were working for let's say you know the San Jose Mercury News, my hometown paper. If I had gotten there out of college, say. And the, and you know, my big thing was I wanted to cover the 49ers. I was a huge NFL fan okay. as a kid. And if the first job they'd said, well, I'm sorry, the Niners uh, beat is, is not available, but um, you know, come in cover this other thing. And then maybe a couple of years in, they say, Oh, Hey, our, uh, our, our sharks guy just left. You want to cover the, the sharks? Well, I don't yeah. know anything about hockey, but okay, fine. Um, the sharks got to San Jose long after I had graduated high school. Unfortunately, <laughs> if they had come along 10, 15 years earlier, who knows? I might've grown up a big hockey fan. Yeah. Um, but you take whatever's available. So in my case, I was a big NFL fan. I, I I became a massive sports fan in the time of the Niners dynasty of the 1980s. Joe Montana to Dwight Clark is my mm -hmm. seminal moment as a young sports fan. That's kind of the thing that that really hooks me, that gets me wanting to, to devour the sports section every day and, and reading Sports Illustrated and, and eventually sets me on the path toward when I'm starting to think about college, like, oh, hey, people get paid to go watch games and then write about it. Like, <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, maybe I can do that. I mean, it's literally like my little, you know, teenage pea brain. That's that's how I thought it, about it. And I went to college at at, uh, at UC Davis, which is near Sacramento, um, and worked for the college paper there. Uh, I was an English major because they don't have a journalism department there. But I knew I wanted to be a sports writer, and I wrote for the college paper every day. And I, I built myself up, uh, built up my resume and my writing skills, and tried to hone, you know, my craft and all that stuff. And then I take a winding path where I've bounced. In my early career, I bounced between sports and news multiple times. Okay. Um, I thought at one point I was not going to go back to sports. I thought news is what matters. I was kind of like leaving sports behind. Um, and in 1997, I'm working for the Ventura County Star covering local government. And huh. my my former editor from a different paper is now at the L.A. Daily News and calls me one day out of the blue and says, hey, I don't know if you have any thoughts of coming back to sports again. And at this point I'm in Ventura. So I'm like an hour and a half, two hours away from LA. So I'm right up the road. And he says, uh, our Laker beat opened up. Hmm. Fun footnote, the Laker beat opened up because uh, a guy named Mark Stein, who your listeners oh, probably yeah. are aware of, yeah. Mark Stein had left the LA Daily News earlier that, that year to go to the Dallas Morning News. He was there for many years before he eventually goes to ESPN, of course. Um, and so, and I didn't know Stein at all back then. Um, but so they had a vacancy and this, this sports editor, this is, his name is uh, Michael Anastasi, who I'd worked for before in Davis um, said, you should come in if you're interested because we knew each other. He was like, I'm going to take myself out of the process, but you'll interview with uh, the deputy sports editor and then the editor in chief of the paper and the managing editor. And 
they'll decide, but I'm just getting you through the door if you're interested. And the the funny thing, and I, I will admit it, I wasn't sure. I actually hesitated. Um, mm. And to, to set the, the stage here for your, your listeners again, 1997, so Shaq and Kobe have just completed or are about to complete. It was the spring, so they were still going. That was their first year together. Um, they had drafted or made the trade for Kobe's draft rights the previous summer. They had signed Shaq away from Orlando that previous summer. And I was not an avid NBA fan or NBA follower. Like I, I, I watched it like a casual fan. My primary sport still as a fan was, was the NFL. Um, but this was, this was an opportunity and obviously a really great one, but I had kind of shut off that part of my brain. I wasn't, I really wasn't sure I wanted to go back to sports. And then I had a couple of friends who were like, are you effing crazy? Like, of course you should go do this. Do you realize who they have on the, I'm like, yeah, I know who they have. Like I'm aware I'm reading, but like, I just, I just kind of had, had picked a direction with my career and I thought I was, I was going to stick with that. So, um, I, I, did, I did ponder for a little bit, but I did go down and interview. Um, and it went well enough, obviously. And I got the job. And frankly, at the moment that I got it, I was probably in over my, my head. Um, I hadn't covered a professional sports uh, beat before I had done plenty of sports before, but I'd been out of sports for a few years. I'd never covered the NBA before. Uh, there was a learning curve for sure. Um, but I'm still doing this 26 years later. So I guess I did. Okay. <laughs> did you fall in love with the game? Like at a certain period of time, what was like the biggest challenge for you as well to, to kind of when you started? So I, 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 in my childhood, I'm more of an NFL fan and a little bit of a baseball fan, right? But I, I did watch, like, as a Bay Area kid, I remember watching the Warriors. In fact, I was uh, I won a, a, a contest at a children's shoe store once where I got to be ball boy for a day at a Warriors game. I was, like, cool. eight, nine years old. And um, and I do have this this memory of they gave me, like, this the, the, the bright yellow T-shirt, whatever the Warriors had, uh, you know, matching their, their the bright yellow they had back in the day. And um, I remember sweeping the key. And I remember rebounding during warmups and stuff. Like I have this vague, vague recollection of, of this. Um, and I'd been to a couple of Warriors games, but they were like way down the pecking order in the Bay Area yeah. in the 70s and 80s. The Niners and Raiders, Giants and A's, those teams were 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 reigned supreme in, in the public consciousness. The Warriors were, it was almost like having a minor league team back then. Um, and it's not that they didn't have a loyal following in, in the Bay Area and especially in Oakland, but they just, they weren't as big of a presence and they weren't very good for most of that. Um, and you know, I, during the nineties, so now, you know, I'm in my, in my twenties in the nineties, I, I mean, I watched all the bulls runs, right? Like I was, you know, like, like everybody else in the country or, or around the world who, if you weren't a fan of another team, you kind of became a de facto Michael Jordan and bulls <laughs> fan. I loved watching the bulls. So like I did watch a bunch of the NBA finals. I remember watching, you know, uh, magic Johnson, um, in the all-star game, you know, uh, after, after the HIV diagnosis, I remember, you know, a variety of playoffs along the way, but I was not that avid watch every, and of course, back then, no satellite TV, no league pass, Yeah, you you know, but I do remember watching NBA and NBC. I remember watching some of the national games. I remember watching, you know, some Sacramento Kings when I was living up that way, some Warriors when I was growing up. But I think it's more you start covering the sport and you and now appreciating it from a different standpoint, right? I, I have no emotional investment in any particular franchise or players, so it's more of this is my job, and you have to be all invested. And so, um, yeah, I'm 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 consuming as much of it as possible and and learning as much as possible about not just the game but how to cover the game, how to work a beat, how to establish a network of of uh, you know 
I don't want to say sources necessarily, because that sounds yeah. like, you know, like there's a, almost a pejorative there, but establishing yeah. a network of people that you can talk to who can give you insight on the game and yeah. what's going on around the league and, and all that. Um, and you just learn it as you go. So to the extent that, you know, there's a love for the game, it's more from an outsider's perspective and a, and a, and a reporter's perspective where, yeah, obviously I love the aesthetics of the game, the artistry of the game, the personalities of the game, and, and a lot of the, the greats that I've been fortunate to cover for the last, you know, uh, over quarter century. Um, but yeah, it was it was not, today I feel like a lot of people, especially younger people who have come into this space in the last 10 years, it's been through, I love the game, I want to write about the game, and then they write about it and they get good at it, they, they you know, get established through a blog or whatever else they get hired somewhere and boom, now they're, now they're doing the thing that they wanted. Hmm. Um, those same people, if they grew up when I did, it would have been a harder path. Uh, and I don't, I don't begrudge that at all, but it is, it's just, it's just different now. So I do think it has changed kind of the, the um, complexion of who's covering the game now, because I think because you can work your way toward the sport you want to cover in a more assertive way in this era, I think more people who cover the game are doing it because they set out to cover the NBA specifically. Whereas I think 30 years ago, that would have been a little harder to do. And, and for you, you mentioned it briefly, just how you develop, I don't want to say sources, but relationships with players and, and management. How deep for you over time, have you built those relationships, but also been able to be critical and ask questions that aren't, that are critical and, and to the players and management and, and whoever you're, you're talking yeah. to um you know it, it's a it's a tricky balance right like the the when i got hired to cover the lakers um i'm coming in i'm brand new to this this entire environment i'm um trying to find my way even just in terms of the logistics and the the routines and the travel and the daily deadlines because you're writing every day of the week basically um and so i didn't you don't i don't think about it, about it as Oh, how am I going to establish these relationships? It's mm -hmm. just by by the nature of the job as a beat writer, you're going to be at every practice, at every game, pregame, postgame, home, road, and you're just around them a lot. And NBA teams rosters aren't that big, you know. They're bigger now, but when I started, it was it was twelve guys plus. You might have a player on injured reserve back when they actually had an injured list, right? So it's a pretty small group plus, and coach even coaching staffs were smaller then. You're around them every day. It's just you. It's just a natural, just like in your, in, in in a classroom or in a place of work or anything else. You're just around the same people a lot of the time, and you just kind of figure out personalities and you establish relationships by just multiple conversations over time. You figure out who's easier to talk to, who's harder to talk to, who to approach after a loss, who not to, maybe. Um, and it's just human dynamics, right? Like like in any other environment. I don't think it's really dramatically different, and. In the course of things, you know, you establish a rapport and and some guys more than others. And so early in my career, um, you know, the Lakers had just acquired Rick Fox at that time. Um, Derek Fisher was going into his second season as as well as Kobe was. Um, and you learn, you know, pretty quickly that like the stars have a lot of demands on them and the stars sometimes are going to be the ones who are going to play it a little more closer to the vest. But the role guys, the supporting cast are usually or, or quite often the guys who are the most valuable to talk to and establish relationships mm -hmm. with because they're they don't have as many demands. They're more willing to talk. They don't have as much scrutiny on them and they don't have as much backlash when they lose. And so um, guys like Rick Fox, Derek Fisher, Robert Ori, uh, Derek Harper, Ron Harper, Horace Grant, Brian Shaw, 
like these were all guys who, and it's not to diminish the role that Shaq and Kobe played, but like these, these guys, the group I just mentioned, they're all really smart about the game. They're really just like, they were high character guys. It's always struck me in the years since I covered the Lakers, how many of the players I covered either became broadcasters, coaches, or both. Hmm. And I think it speaks to like, you know, Teron Liu is another one. Hmm. Um, it speaks to uh, a certain level of basketball intelligence, emotional intelligence, communication skills, because you can't do those jobs as broadcasting and, and, and coaching and broadcasting unless you have those um, those attributes. And so I was fortunate enough to cover all of these guys who I thought were really, you know, good to talk to, enjoyed the conversations, um, and they enjoyed the give and take, and it helped me a lot in my job. So that's a lot of it. And then, you know, you just you encounter other people along the way. And for those first seven years, I'm covering the Lakers as the entirety of my job, right? I'm yeah. When the Lakers are out, I'm not covering other series. Um, I'm not covering the NBA finals in those years, unless the Lakers are in them, but they were in four out of the seven yeah. years that I covered. Yeah. Um, but the point is that I'm not necessarily networking as much with other teams because the Lakers are all consuming. And especially in that Shaq and Kobe and, and then Phil Jackson gets there and like, it's just, it is all consuming. So I'm, I'm, I'm not straying too far at any given time. When I worked for the New York times later, starting in 2004 national newspaper, LA daily news was a local paper. New York Times is a national paper. I'm covering the Knicks. The Knicks never never make the playoffs. <laughs> so every time the Knicks season's over, the Times is saying, well, we're a national paper. You got to go. We need you to cover the playoffs. So they'd send me to Phoenix or Dallas or uh, Utah, Miami, Boston, wherever. And I and I would I would make the rounds. And that's where you start to really, for me, that's where I really started to branch out more, I think, um, and, and getting you know uh, more familiarity with coaches and, and GMs around the league. It's not that it didn't happen during those LA years, but those... I'm, I'm telling you, like the Lakers beat was all consuming. And back then, if you were a beat writer, you were pretty much just solely focused on your beat. You weren't concerned with the rest of uh, the league's uh, drama and politics and, and, and is, moves. Is that something that you've seen differently now where beat writers are more focused around the, the general NBA? A little bit more. It feels like everybody is kind of like simultaneously local and national and everybody's expected to kind of have a, a, a beat on everything at all times. Um and I think beat writers want to move on more quickly now too. Like it, it, it used to be like beat writers would be covering a team 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Um, I think those spans are shorter these days. And I think people want to, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really taxing job. Like it's a fun job, but it's a very exhausting lifestyle. I did it for 16 years in a row, uh, Lakers to Knicks. And that was, you know, by the time I stopped doing that, I was ready to, to get off that, that hamster wheel. It's a, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of games. It's a lot of practices. It's a lot of stories. Um, and so, uh, I, I, I don't begrudge anybody who wants to, <laughs> to like do that for five, six, seven years, maybe, and then, you know, become a national writer. Um, if you, if you can find the opportunity, what would you say is other than what up Beck is maybe the most fondest <laughs> memory of, of your career? Oh man. Fondest. There's a couple different ways I could go with that, I guess. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, over 26 years, there's a lot of different things, I, I, um, the first Lakers championship people look at as kind of this, uh, like it was a given now and, and, and looking back through time, when you look at the, the, the dynasty of Shaq and Kobe three straight championships, like the only three Pete other than, than the bulls in, in the last, however many decades now. Um, and it, it feels like, well, of course they did. They're two of the top five players in the Portland. league and two of the top players of all time. But 
Yeah, Portland, the first year, they're down 15 points in the fourth quarter of game seven of the conference finals. They are literally minutes from possibly having their season end after a 67-win season, their first year under Phil Jackson. And going into that year, all the uh, preseason predictions, the odds, everything, we're all pointing to either San Antonio winning again or Portland or it was it was everybody else. The Lakers were in the mix, but they were not necessarily considered the favorites. The 67 win season was itself a surprise. And they, you know, they, everybody said when Phil Jackson arrived that, oh, it takes time to, to learn the, the triangle offense. Year one is just going to be kind of acclimating. By year two, maybe they're going to be more of a contender. And they had flamed out a couple times before Phil Jackson got there. They, Kobe was still really young. And so, they were not necessarily expected to win it all. And so part of that season, the fun of it was seeing it come together, seeing how quickly they evolved. Um, and then just uh, one of the all-time moments or memories in my career, and just in terms of like amazing games that I've covered, that fourth quarter comeback against the Trailblazers from 15 down in literally game seven of the conference finals is just a, this wild moment. And all, you know, all the way through, of course, the Kobe to Shaq lob, something that I, I wrote an, an oral history about for Bleacher Report a couple of years ago. Um, so that's one of my big memories. I just think that 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 game that night, that series was incredible. Their series against the Kings two years later, which also went seven games in the mm -hmm. conference finals, also won in Boy. game seven, in that case, overtime on the road. Like those are those are just incredible memories. Robert Ori's shot, yeah, in game four of that series after the Vlade tip out. Um, and so, and it's different when you cover a team on a day-to-day -day basis and get to see their highest highs and lowest lows because you have a feel for who they are as people and what it means to them. And you you have a, a sense of them in a different way. So, like, all right, I've covered all these Warriors championships. I've been there for all of those. I've been there for all of LeBron's championships. Um uh, you know, the Spurs titles, the Raptors title. I've been there for all of these, but, and I've, and I've written about them all, but I feel like there's a certain um, intimacy for lack of a better term, but that you have as, as, as writer to a team when you're there every single day. And so even for me that, you know, I always say this, like I, I'm not emotionally invested. I, I don't care if they win or, or lose. I have to write and, and make deadline. That's all that I care about. I want to write a great story. I hope I've got good material to work with. Right. You're rooting for the story, not for teams. But um, I have a a different sense of these guys if I'm covering them every day, and and uh, and so it those stick a little bit more in my memory because I felt like there's there's a different kind of investment. It's a work investment. It's a relationship investment, and it's a time investment. Um, and it's and it's a little bit more fun in a, in a way um, than being there, kind of coming in from parachuting in and having a little bit more distance between you. And I've, listen, I've gotten to know Steph over time and I've gotten to know LeBron over time and I've gotten to know Kevin Durant a little less so, but like, so I, it, it's, there's still something there, but it's not the same as covering a team every day and watching them get from point A to B to C to, to mm -hmm. being champions or three-time champions. I want to ask now a little bit about being a, uh, kind of uh, an NBA writer, but not on the beat. And in terms of your voting, obviously you vote on awards such as MVP and all NBA. And um, I think yesterday it was, you had a podcast with um, Zach Lowe on, on your all NBA votes, but I want to ask you about how, as someone in the media, how you feel about your vote being tied to player contracts. And in your mind, is there another way for player contracts to be impacted that is not through the media's vote and, something like the all NBA. 
For the majority of my time covering the NBA, uh, the postseason awards had a, a nominal impact, if any, on player salaries. Maybe somebody's got a bonus for All-Star, but we weren't involved in the All-Star voting. We are now at 50% of the vote, but for you know decades, All-Star voting was purely by the fans, right? And then the coaches would pick the reserves. Um, and so maybe a guy had a bonus for All-NBA or MVP or whatever, but for the most part, like NBA bonuses don't mean that much in the grand scheme of things with those contracts. What changed and what you're alluding to is that a couple CBAs ago, in an effort to try to uh, create more inducement for players to stay with their teams, superstars to stay with their teams, they started creating all these like super max type deals. And one version of that is tied to whether you make the all NBA team or get certain other awards. And if you achieve these certain plateaus or, or these certain uh, awards in the span of a certain number of years, the contract you're eligible for is literally worth 30, 40 million more now than it would have been. That particular feature wasn't the case when I first started covering the NBA and for most of my time covering it. So in the past, okay, was there a bonus here or there? Fine, yes. If people want to say that there's always been an influence yeah, but... to an extent, but not like this, not 30, 40 million, like serious, serious money. And the NBA and the Players Association did this for obvious reasons. Well, the, the, the league wanted teams to have more tools to keep their stars. The union liked the idea that the best players could earn even more money. They're never going to turn down a, a system in which they're eligible for even more money. Um, so they did it. Now, left out of this equation and this conversation were us, the media. The 100 people used to be more than that, but now 100 people who vote on the awards. Nobody asked, how do you guys feel about this? Because we would have said, oh my God, please no. Please don't. Please do not put anybody's uh, finances or their their futures or their future earnings in our hands, especially to that degree. Um, find another way, please. But they didn't ask. Um, I have made my case to various parties at the NBA and the union over the years saying, I wish you guys would reevaluate this and find a different path. Um, to date, that, hasn't, that has not happened. It's still the case. So yeah, when we sit down to fill out our ballots, especially all NBA, and this year Jalen Brown was one of the uh, players who yeah. um, that was going to make a difference for, and he got all NBA, so he's now eligible for that bigger contract. I don't want to sit down thinking about how this is going to affect Jalen Brown, and, and it's got multiple layers. One, it's it's that much more money that Jalen Brown can earn, so there's there's his fate is tied up in it. It also affects the Celtics because teams have salary caps and luxury tax thresholds that they're trying to avoid. And there's all these other limitations that come in when your salary or when your payroll reaches a certain stage. And so for the Celtics, it's both good and bad. Okay. More financial incentive for Jalen Brown to stay on the flip side. Now our payroll is that much more bloated yeah. and it's going to be that much harder for us to avoid the luxury tax or that much harder to retain other talent. Um, I don't want to be responsible as a, as a reporter for any of that. So I wish they could find if they, if they're going to have a super max and these other wrinkles in the CBA to reward guys, find a different way of measuring greatness or worthiness of that super max that does not involve us. I, I want, I want to quickly go to a, a piece, a great piece you wrote for GQ that everyone should check out, which is welcome to the NBA's age of chaos. And um, this playoffs has been wild. There's been crazy upsets. Um, for you, what do you think is better for the league? Is it better to have this parity or maybe super teams of old, like yeah. the teams you covered with Shaq and Kobe and LeBron and 
and Steph and KD? I think it's an unanswerable question to me. It's a fun conversation. There are people out there who have very strong opinions on this, um, and and including some of my peers and and some of the folks who are a little bit uh, older than I am, who have been covering the league longer than I have, who believe, listen, the NBA has always been a league of dynasties uh, and of super team is a little bit of of a loaded phrase these days because people think yeah. of super team as like oh you went out and grabbed a bunch of stars and stole everybody else's talent yeah um but teams stacked with talent the showtime lakers or the the 80s celtics or the 60s celtics um and that this has always been a league that is been controlled by a handful of teams who have been the fortunate ones to suck up some of the high level talent through whatever means draft free agency trades uh and that that's what's best for the league because Dynasties are 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 fun to either root for or against. They're polarizing. Um, it it gives you it, they take on a different kind of legendary status, right? Like you know, no disrespect to say like the 2004 Pistons or the 2019 Raptors, but when we're talking about those various eras of the NBA, we're we're not going to be talking about the Pistons. We'll be talking about the Lakers who preceded that championship and then and lost to the Pistons. Or the Spurs, who were building a, a, a gradual dynasty uh, after that and beat the Pistons the following year in 2005. Yeah. Um, when we talk about the 2000, the 2010s, we're going to be talking about LeBron and Steph. We're going to be talking about the Warriors. We'll talk a little bit about the Heat. Teams that win just one championship, as special as that is for that team, we don't really lionize or rhapsodize about as much, right? So yeah. this is a league of dynasties and we kind of love them, but we also hate them when it becomes predictable, right? And we had this period of time where it was LeBron in eight straight finals with two different teams, Warriors LeBron for four straight years. years yeah. And after a while, people are like, all right, I'm ready for something new. So there's it, it, it really is kind of a double-edged sword. Parody, which the NBA is always kind of trying to strive toward, right? Like people can quibble about what they think about why the luxury tax or salary cap really exists. But this all does go back to the mid eighties when things were getting a little out of hand and certain teams and big markets were able to keep getting the best talent and free agency. And they were trying to create a means to make sure the talent was more evenly distributed for better or worse. That's the idea. The cap, the salary cap is about that. The luxury tax, a lot of other wrinkles, um, and then in more recent years, the play-in tournament, which was trying to, you know, it's partially an anti-tanking device, but that induces more parity. Um, the flattened lottery odds, again, anti-tanking, but again, can can contribute to more parity because now everybody, instead of being either at the very top or very bottom, there's more in the middle. And what we saw this past season and what we've seen play out in these playoffs where a six, seven, and eight seed all advanced for the first time ever hmm. is because we have a lot more parity than we've ever had. So to your question, good or bad, right? Well, in the NBA Finals, it's great to have super teams or dynasties or the the the, the best of the best because that's when you get the broadest audience. Casual fans start tuning in more and more as you go through each su- subsequent round of playoffs until you get to the finals. But I would say that for the rest of the season, that 82-game slog, and it is a slog sometimes, and the early rounds of the playoffs – you want everyone to feel some hope. You don't want that many markets feeling like, yeah, another year we're going to win 32 yeah. games and then get a, a you know lowish lottery pick. Like you want everybody to feel like they truly have a chance. Adam Silver, when he was deputy commissioner in 2011 during the lockout, had this mantra that was is embedded in all our brains who covered the the lockout because he said it every single time when we <laughs> when we talked to them. But he said we want a league where 30 teams, if well managed have a chance to compete for a championship. And that was the idea was like, 
not have this this extreme pol polarization where big markets could afford all the talent and small markets were constantly losing the talent. You wanted some stability. You wanted some belief in all those markets. So when so my belief, like I think there's a limit. I think at a certain point the parity becomes almost like. Like right now, it's 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 kind of it's it's weird. I don't know what to think of it. It's it's so even, um, but I do think that you need a league where small markets feel like they've got a shot, where it's not always we can't compete with L.A. and New York and Chicago or 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 San Francisco or whatever because they have bigger TV contracts and because they're more attractive to players. You need some semblance of 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 belief and an ability for those markets to compete. And I want to go off that quickly. I just want to run through some of the uh, series before I let you go. Sure. And obviously, uh, the the Suns lost to the Nuggets last night. What were some of your key takeaways from from that series? And, and maybe who do you think the Nuggets would prefer to play in, in the next round, either Golden State or the Lakers? From the moment the Suns got Kevin Durant, my th and, and everybody was ready to crown them, you know, if not NBA champions, at least Western Conference favorites. And I thought. I think they're a favorite, but not the favorite. And I was I was a pump the brakes guy on this one because what happened when they made the trade for Durant was they lost all their depth, uh, all their room for error, and they were only going to have Durant for a maximum of maybe 20 games, which turned out to be only eight games in the regular season because he was hurt. And I kept saying to, to folks, like, this, this just doesn't seem like enough time. If chemistry matters at all, you need more time. So lo and behold, we get to the playoffs where – you know, they had a pretty tough series against the Clippers who were banged up, but they got out of that one. And then they go against the Nuggets team that is fully healthy, has some depth, has been together for years and knows each other well. And here the Suns are trying to get by with, you know, a, a, you know, two great scorers, Durant and Booker. And then, you know, all right, Aiton's good. Chris Paul's up there in years. And then, my God, nothing after that. Like yeah. the drop off. Monty Williams didn't know who to who to play. Um, he never got a chance to establish a rotation. Their bench is depleted. I don't think there's anything surprising about that way that series ended up, frankly. Um, the Suns have a lot of work to do in the offseason, and, and I think they always were going to have a lot of work to do. And so I'm not surprised by the outcome there. Um, who would the Nuggets rather play? It's a fun question. Um, I would say probably the Warriors. Okay. Because... <sighs> For a simple reason, the Lakers have Anthony Davis and the Warriors don't, right? Like, uh, I'm sure, you know, I, I haven't gone and looked. I don't know how Kevon Looney's traditionally done against Jokic, but uh, Anthony Davis is one of the best defenders and certainly one of the best big man defenders in the NBA. Um, I, I think I might rather, if, if I'm if I'm the, the Nuggets, I'm trying to avoid Anthony Davis because he might be somebody who who's going to corral Jokic a little bit better and who who Jokic or somebody is going to have to deal with. Whereas with the Warriors, like, you know, they're not going through Kavon, Kavon Looney. So Jokic doesn't have to worry about guarding Kavon Looney. Um, you, know, you try to keep him off the glass, which Jokic is capable of doing. Uh, so uh, off the top of my head, that's 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 the way I see it. And and to go to the Lakers versus Golden State, I know you're a big you really believe in this Warriors team. How likely do you think they win tonight and come back and win this series? I never count them out. I never count out a team with Steph Curry on it, but I always have this rule that, you know, never bet against LeBron. And so these, these principles are coming <laughs> into severe conflict right now. Um, I, for, for all kinds of reasons, I'd like to see the Warriors at least extend it to a game seven. Uh, game sevens are fun. Uh, this may be the last time we see Steph and LeBron do this, yeah. right? Like they'll play in the regular season again, but 
there was never a given they were going to face off in the postseason again anyway after the four straight finals. And even if people were sick of it after a while, it's kind of fun to be able to come back to it. That it's happening in a second round matchup is is you know a little strange. But uh, if, if if this is the last time we get to see them play for these kinds of stakes, might as well go seven. And I tend to think like the Warriors, you know, it, it's the whole Rudy Tomjanovich line about you know <laughs> never yeah. underestimate the heart of a champion. Yeah. Um, I, I, that, that's kind of the way I view them. There's a certain aura about the Warriors that I, I find sometimes irrationally so, but I, I find like, it's, it's hard to, 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 to not believe in them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, yesterday, last night, I was thinking about questions to ask you about the postmortem of the Boston Celtics and Jason Tatum and because of his terrible start to, to the game six, and then they came back and won. Um, do you think the Celtics figured something out? Uh, against the 76ers by starting Robert Williams? And and what can the 76ers do to adjust in game seven? Um, yeah, I don't, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting, um, it was an interesting wrinkle and an interesting outcome. We could have been having a much different conversation though. And you would have been asking a much different question. Like Tatum catches fire late. If he hadn't, it would have been, well, they made the adjustment and it, and it didn't work or it backfired. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. It, it seemed to have given them um, a boot. I mean, listen, it was a really low scoring game. So it clearly helped them out defensively against Embiid and Harden. So the premise is still, the premise holds regardless. But if Tatum doesn't catch fire late after a you know horrible game prior to that, um, <laughs> then we're having a different conversation. Um I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the counter is there for the Sixers. Um, it, it's Robert Williams and, and Al Horford together certainly pre- present a much um, more difficult uh, or, or, or just stiffer resistance for, for Joel Embiid. And you want to start there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I really haven't thought that far ahead on it. I, I, I don't. I don't know what Doc's next move is, but I, I will be curious to see if there's a if there's a counter adjustment, or if you think you know what we were in position to win this game anyway. If we if we just don't give up a couple threes to Tatum late, um, we'll see. I, I want to before I let you go ask you about the Knicks and Heat, and that series has been really competitive. And also, it must be nice for you living in New York and and covering that team for many years to finally see them be successful, but. What are the chances the Knicks come back and, and win tonight and maybe push it to a game seven? I've, I've been to more playoff games without having to leave home this spring than since I moved to New York 19 years ago, because <laughs> I got, I went to a, you know, a couple of Nets games in the first round against the Sixers. Um, I went to one of the, 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 the Knicks uh, Cavaliers. Anyway, two, I think it was, there were three here, right? I think I went to yeah, two of the three Knicks Cavs yeah. games. Um, and then, and then, uh, yeah, and then I went to, um, I've been to, yeah, all three of the the games against the Heat. So this is the most, but it's crazy to think this is by far the most playoff games I've seen in New York since I got here 19 wow. years ago. Um, wow. But I suspect this is probably coming to an end. This ride's coming to an end for for the Knicks. Um, Jimmy Butler's the best player in the series. The Heat have been fanta- fantastic at home, and um, while I, I I admire what the Knicks have been able to do. Uh, they just feel like a team that's got a little bit more volatility to them and a little bit less solid of an identity. Uh, and yeah, I just can't, I don't, I don't see the heat losing a home game to them. No, I, I definitely see that as well. And I'm going to be mean to you, Howard, because I know you hate predictions and I want I to ask you, <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you before, uh, just in terms of right now, as we stand today, who, who do you think will be the matchup in the finals and, and who do you have winning the title? 
I think before, so before the season started, I think I was in like the, I say Bucks Clippers. I might've been, I mean, I might've been in the Bucks Clippers camp before the season started. And I don't, I don't, I can't even remember that for sure. There's somewhere on the web, a prediction that I don't care about. Um, yeah. And then I probably like before the postseason started, I think I would have gone Boston and almost by default, the Warriors, because I just had too many doubts about the rest of them. I had some doubts about the Nuggets. Apologies to the Nuggets, but I had some doubts about them. I had definitely, as you have already heard today, had doubts about the Suns. Uh, the Lakers had a, a really steep mountain to climb. I didn't trust the Clippers and, and the, the state of their health by the time the postseason arrived. Uh, didn't trust the Grizzlies or the Kings. So it was like by default, it was almost like, well, listen, you know, as I've already noted, like I always I have a hard time not believing in the Warriors and as despite a wonky season, they have done a, a great job of pulling themselves back together. They were finally whole. So I would have said Warriors Celtics in a rematch. And certainly once the Bucks got knocked out by Miami, I thought, well, there we go. Celtics mm -hmm. are definitely they're waltzing to the finals. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, not not so much waltzing by the Celtics. Uh, they need waltz lessons, I guess. <laughs> um, look, they're still in a position to do this. Uh, clearly, I think the Celtics, if they if they come out of this series, Whoever comes out of the series, Philly or, or Boston, they're they're beating Miami or New York, right? Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay slightly consistent. Uh, I'll just I'll I'll still lean Boston on the on the Eastern Conference side. On the West, I mean, the Nuggets look good. I'm gonna, it, it, the Nuggets look really good. I do think so. To to this point, like the Nuggets have not faced either a LeBron and Anthony Davis combination who've won a championship or a, or a Steph Curry warriors who have won four championships together. Like the nuggets have had the luxury in some sense of like, as a number one seed, you get the, the walkover first round. And then in the second round, they got a very flawed and, and beat up Suns team. I don't know that the nuggets have truly been tested. This is not asterisk creating, by the way, I'm not diminishing anything every year. Somebody gets a little bit of an easier path based on matchups and health and all that stuff. So I'm not diminishing what the nuggets have done. I'm just saying as impressive as this run has been so far, it will be as it should be. I think a much higher degree of difficulty against either the warriors or the Lakers. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I guess I, as we sit here now, hours away from the Warriors potentially being eliminated, um, I'm still going to say Warriors. I'm, okay. I'm going to still say Warriors Celtics in a, in a rematch. And I will, I will probably be wrong on at least one, if not both of those. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Howard, for taking the time and coming on. I really do appreciate it. And I just wanted to give the, you the floor. What are you working on going forward at GQ or at the Locked On Network that people should uh, stay tuned for? Yeah, so I'm a regular contributor to the Locked On Podcast Network, which covers every NBA team. And so I'm on multiple shows per week on some of the team-specific shows and also the national show on Mondays, uh, Locked On NBA. Um, so you can hear me uh, in way too many places on the, on the network there right now. My writing uh, is uh, at the moment for GQ. I'm a contributor for GQ Sports. That's at GQ.com. I also have an authory page, which is like the word author with a Y on the end, authory.com backslash Howard Beck, anything that I write for GQ, all of my past stuff for Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and Bleach Report is all there as well. And uh, yeah, much more to come in uh, in the weeks ahead as we go through uh, through the finals. Well, I, I hope uh, that your uh, your prediction is is goes well and then that the Warriors uh, come back and win and, and that you, you get to 
head out to the Bay Area, Bay Area, sorry. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a busy time, Howard. So I, I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for coming on. Uh, my absolute pleasure, Alex. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for uh, all the great questions. And thanks for having me. Appreciate it.